0: Hello and welcome to the Moonshots Podcast. It's a super duper episode 62. I'm your co-host, Mike Parsons. And as always, I'm joined by our traveling Wilbury, Mr. Chad Owen. Good evening. Hey, Mike.
1: Glad to uh, be here and kick off another author series here with you.
0: I know. And we have to tell our listeners that this was a Chad Owen recommendation. This was an author I hadn't known. And I've been delighted to dive into the world of her ideas. And they're pretty challenging, pretty meaty stuff. So I got to say, Chad, you have brought something to the table in a serious way here. Tell us a bit more about this wonderful writer we're going to dig into. I first came across her in a TED
1: Talk that she gave and uh, sort of like how I discovered Simon Sinek as well. A an audience favorite and and a Mike and Chad favorite. Mm-hmm. The only subject that you and I have gotten to meet in person together, in fact, uh, here in New York City. We That's right. How great was that? To get How together with that? Simon at a at a book signing. Yeah, it was it was really fun. And and you've got the selfie to prove it too. <laughs>
0: I do indeed. Yeah, we have our own Simon Sinek s- selfie. We felt felt like we were like. The entourage, right? Just groupies hanging out with Simon. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. But d- to get back to the author, we're we're going to be diving into here in the next few episodes. I first came across Brené Brown on on a TED talk that she gave, and she's a fellow Texan, so I was won over quite uh, <laughs> quite soon by her uh, by her colloquialisms. But Brené, I think, is a really interesting author to bring here. Maybe a bit unexpected for some of you out there, but I can't. Uh, recommend her books and her thinking and her mindset shifts that that she encourages all of us to make. I, ca- I can't recommend her enough. So I'm really excited to dive in here today in one of the first books that she wrote out of academia, uh, The Gifts of Imperfection.
0: And um, let's, let's kind of put her into context. And this is really good for me to go through because obviously you're very familiar with her. Well, the first thing is uh, The Gifts of Imperfection, is breaking all sorts of records. It has four thousand two hundred reviews, averaging in a four and a half out of five on Amazon. So that's got to be a proxy for something, <laughs> something good. Um, uh-huh. It's it's uh, it's pretty huge, and her f- subsequent books are, are are wildly popular as well. I think Chad. What's interesting for me as as being really new to her work was that I think. If I make the case to myself and to the listeners, like, okay, she talks a lot about what we fear, about having courage, about resilience, and she talks a lot of, uh, about these really powerful topics that really get to the sources of our motivations and some of our behaviours. I'm, I'm going to present to you my best attempt at explaining why she matters, and I want you to build on this and tell me if, if, I'm, if I'm on track. Okay. I think what we're gonna to learn together uh on the show, getting into the gifts of imperfection by Brene Brown, is this book tackles all those little voices that we have in our head, mm. all those fears and uncertainties. And and they often either lead us to do some strange things or maybe block us from really realizing something bigger in life. So for me, she's incredibly wise. And what I like is she's not trying to be a social justice warrior, she's not trying to signal her virtues here. She's like a wise study of the things that block us, that stop us from being the best version of ourselves. And today it's really getting deep into some of the 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 dark moments, some of those uh, negative voices we have in our heads when we've made the choice to go out in the world and try and really do something. I mean, she talks uh, a lot uh, about if you really show up or um, even to steal from one of her other book titles, if you dare to be great. And I think that everything she talks about is some of those dark moments that you face when you really try and make the most of life. One of my favorite parts
1: about her is she's she's an Academic, she's a, a doctor. She's got a PhD, mm. and everything that while she's talking about, very kind of what you might call touchy feely or soft uh, skills, it's backed by hard data, science, and research. And she's someone that has spent at least a decade studying things that maybe we haven't turned this kind of attention to in such kind, in such a like rigorous and academic. Fashion, so when she's talking about things like shame and vulnerability, all those like little voices inside of our head it's not just it's not just conjecture it's it's based in in hard data and science, which I think is what really makes her message powerful is yes. she's combining she's combining the abstractness of you know how we feel with the the hard data and science and approach of of an academic and and a researcher so that i mean that's why I'm excited to present. Her work uh, here to the listeners and and go on this learning journey here with you, Mike, as we we dive into not just this book, but uh, a few of her newer books as well.
0: Fantastic. i'm I'm ready to dive into a, a world of a bit of reflection, maybe exposing some thoughts that we don't often share. And I think innovation is a team sport, so we don't often talk about or reflect on how we feel and how we feel about others and how we connect with others. So I'm primed and I'm ready, Chad. Where do we start? We start with one of my favorite quotes that also
1: is one of her favorite quotes. So again, I I feel like I'm a bit of a kindred spirit with her, but uh, I'll just uh, jump right into her TED talk where she's sharing, sharing this favorite quote of hers and talking about stepping into the arena.
2: Theodore Roosevelt comes up, and a quote comes up, and I read it, and this is what it says. It's a quote from a speech that he gave in the early 1900s at the Sorbonne, and a lot of people call it the man in the arena speech, and this is the passage that changes my life. It's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done it better. The credit belongs to the person who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred with blood and sweat and dust, who at the best, in the end, knows the triumph of high achievement and who at worst, if he fails, he fails daring greatly. So the moment that I read that, I closed my laptop and this is what shifted in me. Three huge things. First, I I've spent the last 12 years studying vulnerability. And that quote was everything I know about vulnerability. It is not about winning, it's not about losing, it's about showing up and being seen. The second thing, this is who I want to be. I want to create. I wanna make things that didn't exist before I touched them. I want to show up and be seen in my work and in my life. And if you're going to show up and be seen, There is only one guarantee, and that is, you will get your ass kicked. That is the guarantee. That's the only certainty you have. If you're going to go in the arena and spend any time in there whatsoever, especially if you've committed to creating in your life, you will get your ass kicked. So you have to decide at that moment, I think for all of us, if courage is a value that we hold, this is a consequence. You can't avoid it. The third thing, which really set me free, and I think Steve, my husband, would argue has made me somewhat dangerous, is kind of a new philosophy about criticism, which is this. If you're not in the arena, also getting your ass kicked, I'm not interested in your feedback. Period. No? if, you know, if you have constructive information, feedback to give me, I want it. And yeah, I'm an academic. I'm hardwired for wrestling around with stuff like that. If you say, hey, you forgot all this literature, or hey, you should have done this, or terrible sentence construction over here, like, let's go, let's, let's do it. I love that. But if you're in the cheap seats, not putting yourself on the line, and just talking about how I could do it better, I'm in no way interested in your feedback.
0: Ooh, get ready to get your ass kicked. If you want to make something of life, then the only th- outcome for sure that's going to happen is you're going to fall over, get mud on your face. <laughs> yeah. That is, I cannot begin to tell you how I can relate to that
1: and, chat. And all the people that we've profiled on the show, how, how they have stumbled and fallen. And that's been a reality of their own entrepreneurial journey as
0: well. Yeah, and it's it's for me. It is the thing that I think stops a lot of people from doing something remarkable because they're afraid of getting your ass kicked. And anyone who's tried to do a thing or two in life and just to put it all on the line will know that it never works out perfectly. There is always trade-offs, compromises. But the thing you can know for sure is that you dared to do something great. And it's a rite of passage, and I, I think the build on this, Chad, for both ourselves and the listeners is embrace the ass kicking. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's you're mo- it. like
0: right now. I'm learning. Yeah, yeah. Embrace it. Don't don't run away from it. I mean, doesn't that? I mean, you you've done so many things. Uh, you've traveled the world. Look, just look at the the this year so far for you, Chad you have made major pivot in your life. You've been on all these adventures. Did it go perfect? No, I found myself on my ass quite a few times. (laughs) (laughs) But you just embrace it and get up. And then before you know it, the next week, it starts to look better again. It's not going to be like permanent or anything. It's just like, it's a very big moment of learning and reflection. And and I I just love it. Embrace the ass kicking, and, and the fact that this goes, this notion of of daring greatly, it goes right back to Roosevelt in the early nineteen hundreds. Tells you that w- we have right here a, a universal truth. Yeah, and I don't know if you know this story, Mike,
1: but Teddy Roosevelt was giving a speech, uh, a different speech. He was shot, and he shrugged it off, finished his speech, and then maybe 20 or 30 minutes later was then uh, being tended to by by the doctors. And so if if he's not a man <laughs> that's not stepping into the arena and getting shot at, aka his ass kicked, um, I don't know who is.
0: <laughs> mm, mm. Well, the great news for our listeners is we've got a clip that builds off this, which is uh, Brene Brown talking about this life in this arena, and she's going to talk a lot about this concept of the arena which is just a proxy for, hey, you're really trying to create something, something brave and new and ambitious. And she explains in this next clip that if you show up, here's what you need to do.
2: The other piece that's tough is to me, if you're gonna spend your life in the arena, if you're gonna spend your life showing up, really showing up, there's a couple things that you need. The first is a clarity of values. You have to, like, I know. Like, when I came out here, I knew I could screw this completely up. I could get booed off stage. Bad things could happen. But I don't have a choice because if courage is my value, I have to do this. Whether it's successful or not, it's irrelevant. So a real clarity of values is important. The other thing is you've got to have at least one person in your life who's willing to pick you up and dust you off and look at you when you fail, which hopefully you will because if you're not failing, you're really not showing up but who was willing to look at you when you fail and say, man, that sucked. <laughs> yeah, it was totally as bad as you thought.
1: <laughs>
2: but you were brave. And let's get you cleaned up, because you're gonna go back in. And this is someone who loves you, not despite your imperfections and vulnerabilities, but because of them. And they should have great seats in the arena. Like, I forgot for five, ten, for a decade, I forgot to invite these people into my arena. Because, you know, it's the old, um, I always want to say Karl Marx, but it's Groucho Marx difference. Um, (laughs) I'm a social worker. We read a lot more Karl than Groucho. I didn't want to belong to a club that would let me in. I forgot to invite people because I thought, "If if you're my fan, if you're here supporting me, how important could you be? Like, I'm trying to win over the people who hate me. You simply love me. You simply hold my hair back when I'm puking. You pay bills with me and raise kids with me. How important could you be? I'm looking for the stranger in the mall. That's who I'm trying to win over.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I love where she starts talking about the clarity of values and to understand why you're doing it in the first place. Because if we're just going to keep getting knocked down, something, something deep inside of us has to be moting, motivating us to to do it. It can't just be, you know, seeking that external validation or success. Because not every venture is going to be successful.
0: That's right. And and how much, Chad, has this theme of really choosing for a mission or to build a company or a product or a service that you actually care about the outcome. And that you really want to see that outcome come to life rather than prioritize the the wealth and the accolades. I mean, many of the, the people that we have studied have talked about having this clear purpose and mission because that is the juice. That's also the Teflon uh, that helps you avoid uh, all those sticky moments. I mean, this is a big theme across all 60 plus shows, isn't it?
1: yeah two examples that come to mind. I'll do the obvious one first, and then maybe i'll I'll go for the deep cut. Mm-hmm. um Jeff Bezos always talks about being customer obsessed. yeah everything that they do at Amazon is putting the customer at the center and really over investing in in that customer experience, and we've seen how well that has paid off, so that core value of being customer obsessed, everything for the customer that singular focus for the entire duration of the companies has paid off. But someone else that has an even longer track record with a slightly different focus is Fred Smith of FedEx. And the number one value that he instilled in the company from day one was being employee focused and meeting the needs of the employees of FedEx first. Right. And then betting that that would have uh, outsized returns in you know, creating a product and service that people loved because the people that were working on it loved it. And mm. so for me, those are two examples of, of values that were set at the very beginning of the ventures that have served them very well and created very lasting and very successful businesses. Mm,
0: mm. I think what we've done in these first two clips is sort of lay this foundation of stepping into the arena, showing up, daring to be great, like all of those concepts. I think everybody is with us now. They know we're talking about swinging for the fences, putting yourself out there to try and do something brave, ambitious, remarkable, something that has some some real impact in the world. And this next body of clips is Brené's thinking around one of the toughest things we're going to face if we're going to go and step into the arena if we're going to show up and that is criticism. So what we've got uh, really set up for you now is really a a way to think about to manage to handle criticism because the critics will come at you. and, And I think to build on your Bezos quote, he also has a quote, which I'm going to paraphrase, which is, if people are not criticizing you, then you're not being brave enough, right? He talks about like, look, some people like me, some people hate me, but that's, hey, because I'm trying to do a thing. He's showing mm-hmm. up. He's stepping into the arena. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we got four great clips coming up all around critics and facing criticism, thinking about it, handling it, managing it, and, and how to kind of uh, live side by side with it because it's a natural uh, thing. So let's have a listen uh, to Brene Brown. This is on the first of four clips. Uh, this first one is really about how we might focus on what we actually control.
2: I used to think the best way to put your work out into the world is to make sure the critics are not in the arena, but you have no control over who's in the arena. And the best way I have found is to know that they're there and to know exactly what they're going to say to you. Because each of you know. The three seats that will always be taken when you walk into the arena, when you share your work with someone, the three seats that will always be taken are shame, scarcity and comparison. Shame, completely universal human emotion. We all have it. It's that gremlin that whispers, you're not, you're not enough, or if you're feeling pretty confident, Like this I went through this like when Scott was talking, I went back and forth from like a a ping pong table with gremlins, back from, oh my God, I'm not enough, I'm not enough to, I can do this, I can totally do it. Ooh, who do you think you are? That's the other gremlin, that's how it works. Like look at you, big for your britches. Um, I clearly have Texas gremlins. Um, I don't know that everyone says too big for their britches, but. That's what my gremlins say. So shame always has a seat. The other seat that's always taken is scarcity. What am I doing that everyone, what am I doing that's original? Everyone else is doing this. 150 people are doing it who are better trained than than I am. What am I contributing? Does this really matter? The third seat always, comparison. How many of you ever struggle with comparison? is a nightmare. Um, you know, I made a pact not to talk to anyone in the green room, because what I was afraid that I would end up doing is say, so what are you talking about? <laughs> That's interesting, because I'm going first. Um, and so if it sounds super good, and I think I suck comparatively, I may say that. And then I'm catching a flight to Dallas. Um, comparison is always there. The fourth seat I left open for you. you got to know who's in the fourth seat. Is it a teacher? Is it a parent? Is it a shitty ex coworker? Am I the only one that's ever had one of those? Um, the thing is I don't care what people think. I don't worry about the critics in the arena. It sends a huge red flag up for me. We're hardwired for connection. When we stop caring what people think, we lose our capacity for connection. When we become defined by what people think, we lose our capacity to be vulnerable. Not caring what people think is its own kind of hustle. Trust me.
1: Wow. The, that last point really speaks to me because she likens it to hustle and I think Hustle is something that those of us in entrepreneurial ventures are probably all too familiar with, and I think what happens is we do shut ourselves off in the pursuit of that hustle and i'm curious for for you mike which which of those uh seats or or different seats do you find when you're putting yourself out there and trying something new and different or bold
0: yeah i I think um the default that i have is that i'm always feeling no matter what that i have underperformed mm. meaning what characterizes me in terms of the the critics you know the shame the scarcity the comparison is i sort of have this wildly ridiculous expectation that everything will be world-class best ever. So I may have done something really good, but actually feel I feel disappointed because I was like, oh, it's probably not the best in the world or that's a long way from being best in the world. And that's, that's what comes up uh, in terms of self-criticism. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm, all, I'm always like, oh, I only did a 48-hour design thinking workshop we only created fourteen validated products. Hmm. I guess that's okay. <laughs> I guess I don't know. That, that's definitely where. It
1: yeah, but it's it's so interesting how our own self critics are often the worst, but the most overlooked on our part. We might be most concerned with the competition or with our clients or stakeholders, but we can ignore we can ignore the ones that are us. Yes.
0: Well, she goes, we've got a clip talking about uh, self-criticism in a moment, but what I think is powerful in this is that you have to coexist with criticism and critics, whether it's self-criticism or from outside, because we're hardwired to be human connected social beings. So she's pointing out for us there, look, don't go ignoring it don't 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 say you don't care what anyone thinks cuz like if you're truly there then you're disconnected with humanity mm-hmm. so it all that kind of drives us to the question well how do we start dealing with this and what's so perfect is this this next clip literally brings us to this point this is Brené Brown talking about critics and 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 how to how coexistence looks like how it feels like with critics and criticism
2: So I guess the real specific how-to's are this. The world keeps going whether you know it or not. The critics are in the arena whether you identify them and think about the messages that keep us small. They're there whether you do that or not. What I have found in my life and what I have found in my research, which fueled what I did in my life, um, is that the people who have the most courage, who are willing to show up and be the most vulnerable, are the ones who are very clear about who the critics are, the ones who reserve seats for them and say, I hear you, I get it, I know where the messaging's coming from, I'm not, I'm, not in it. I'm not buying it anymore. So to get very clear.
0: To get very clear, to know who the critics are, and it's interesting, those who are courageous and vulnerable have almost sort of scoped out where the criticism is is coming from, right? Mm-hmm. That's I, I find that very interesting. Like you've said, I can see it. I know you're there. I know what it's all about, but I can still be vulnerable and or courageous, courageous in my endeavors because I've sort of mapped you guys out.
1: That's so hard to do though,
0: <laughs> <laughs> like to, to make the time and the effort to be mindful
1: and be vulnerable and say, hey, m- maybe I'm not the best in the world. Mm. In this moment, maybe I'm not able to achieve everything that I want to achieve here. This is something that I would love to practice more, but I think um, there's a lot that we can learn here from brene as as she's giving us this kind of template and tools of how to to deal with the critics. And this idea of reserving a seat, I think is really fascinating. This, this metaphor of mm. the arena and reserving seats, I think is, is really interesting. So here, here she is building upon this idea of reserving seats for our critics.
2: What I'm gonna invite you to do, this way maybe, is reserve seats for them, which doesn't seem like a good thing to do. But I have 13,000 pieces of data, and I've done this work for 12 years. And what I have found and what I have learned from these folks, and then try to apply it in my own life that has changed my life, is to reserve a seat, to take the critics to lunch, and to simply say when I'm trying to do something new and hard and original, and I'm trying to be creative and I'm trying to innovate, to say, I see you, I hear you, but I'm going to show up and do this anyway. And I've got a seat for you and you're welcome to come, but I'm not interested in your feedback.
0: Hmm. <laughs> yeah, take a seat, um, but I'm not going to get all twisted up by my critics. I, I just love the, the visualization she's bringing to yeah. a conversation that happens in your head. <laughs> you know, we might not even share half of this with our partners and our colleagues. This is all the, what I call the little voices, right?
1: hmm There's some interesting parallels here to some other things that we've learned here on the show, kind of in the power of of strong visualization. Mm. There's a way in which she's giving us this mental model of, you know that there's going to be critics, and they're going to sometimes be able to cut you down and knock you on your ass. Why not? Why not invite them in, reserve a seat for them so that you're kind of doing this pre-preparation so that when you do step into the arena, you put yourself out there and, and the critics in real life show up and, and start to, start to criticize you. You've already been prepared. You're in a, you're kind of in a, and you have that kind of even keel and kind of cool attitude and you can kind of let it Wash off you mm. like water, and it doesn't, you know, take you off your game and really uh, disrupt your.
0: Oh yeah, that's good. Your flow. Yeah, I think that's yeah.
1: that's how I'm kind of taking this and figuring out how I might put it into practice.
0: Yeah, it's it's almost having a map, and you can almost point to where the speed bumps are going to be.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I get, I kind of call it like looking around the corner and then looking around the other corner and in anticipating mm. uh, that that criticism but you were talking about the voices in our in our head and in some ways those are uh inescapable critics right we can't shut the door <laughs> and retreat into our office <laughs> with uh with that critic
0: can we right but but don't you like this is like when you freak out about something in your head and then i have these things where things will happen during my day and i have this very disproportionate reaction in my mind and then somehow the thing resolves itself the following day and i even catch myself thinking why did i even get like upset or flustered or stressed about that because mm. it was such a ridiculous little voice in my head often that they come from misinterpretations and misunderstandings and all of that kind of stuff but it's crazy you know these voices in our head this uncertainty this doubt this fear, it plagues us, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the freshness of these ideas from Brene is why
1: I nominated her as someone that we should learn from here on the show because often yours and mine and, and other innovators' approaches is very externally focused, seeking external validation, going straight to the customers, this bottom-up approach. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we can overlook our, ourselves in that process as well, understanding that you know, in some ways, we we can also be our own customer and own own user, and that there's mm. some learnings to be had to be turning inward a little mm. bit as well. Sometimes,
0: mm. no, I love that thought. I love that thought. Well, um, she's got one more seat left in in the arena, doesn't she, Chad?
1: Yeah. Well, that's the one for ourselves, of course. And so she's going to talk uh, a little bit here about how we can deal with that peskiest of critics ourselves.
2: The last thing, which I think is the hardest, is this. One of these seats needs to be reserved for you. One of these seats needs to be reserved for me. I need, when we look up and we're putting an idea, our piece of art, our design forward, who do you think the biggest critic in the arena normally is? yourself. And so, definitely me. Like, I have never watched either of those TED Talks. Because it's not in service of the work for me. And I try to do things that are only in service of my work. Because what would, what would it serve for me to watch it? I would sit there and go, oh my god, suck like in your stomach. Oh my god, that's not what you were going to say. You know? We're so self-critical. And one of the things that I think happens, and I think this happens a lot, it happens in different professions, but I think I I see it a lot with creatives, is there is an ideal of what you're supposed to be. And what a lot of us end up doing is we orphan the parts of ourselves that don't fit what that ideal is supposed to be. And what it leaves when we orphan all those parts of us is it just leaves the critic. And so reserved in this seat, is this, where we came from, how we started, our families, that's me the oldest of course. (laughs) The lost years, the years where I was so lost and confused and hurt and disillusioned that I thought the only path to freedom was a flock of seagulls' haircut. Uh, the higher the hair, the closer to God, we say in Texas. The people who love us, the moments that make us who we are. And in that chair should be this person. The person who believes in what we're doing and why we're doing it. And the person who says, yeah, it's so scary to show up. It feels dangerous to be seen. It's terrifying. But it is not as scary, dangerous, or terrifying as getting to the end of our lives and thinking, what if I would have shown up? What would have been different?
0: Hoo-ha! Does she close that well? Ah, Chad, like... If that is ever the real rapper on listening to those little voices, it's just listen to yourself in the future. You never want to be sitting there on your deathbed saying, I wish I'd shown up. Like For me, that is the point that sparks me into like, yep, yeah, you're right, let's go do this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bloody well go for it because life is too short. Like to me, that is such a powerful thought. didn't you find that just that's just like boom,
1: yeah, I love it 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 reminds me of the great scene in Dead Poet Society with Robin Williams, the Carpe diem scene where mm-hmm. you know he's he's telling the young boys that he's teaching to to seize the day. I also I've never thought of this in this way, but she talks about maybe us creatives can orphan or distance ourselves from the parts of ourselves that don't fit like this ideal part of us and again it's it's something that's often un, unsaid unspoken and not addressed and yeah I just I just love that she's asking us to inquire within ourselves and really understand that we don't have to do that and that actually we're probably best served if we're inviting that person into and reserving the seat for them in the arena. Mm,
0: powerful stuff, because if you look at the context of the first half of the show, we've said, okay, let's show up, let's be resilient, let's go into this arena, let's dare to be great. And and then the first thing you face is the naysayers, whether it's outside or in. And I think this this really frames sort of the hero's journey, whether you're fighting for a cause you believe in, building a company, building a product, you will go on, on this, this path. And I think she's given us so such invaluable advice on listening to that little voice in our head or listening to those around us who say it can't be done or you shouldn't do that. How great is that? And what's even better, Chad, is we've got a whole second half of the show yep. on uh, really tackling, well, if you are going to go on this journey and you're going to manage the critics in the right way, well, what what else can you do to step into the arena? So I'm pretty excited about that. But Chad, I feel like we should just pause for a second and do a little bit of housekeeping because I don't know if you've seen, but the, the, the ratings of the show, you know, I've been putting out the call to Ash, everyone. Oh, yes. Go into iTunes, rate the show. We're up to 25 ratings we are holding on for dear life to five star rating podcast, which is pretty damn good. So thank you to everybody who's been listening. Yes. Uh, We are super pumped about that. Um, And I know that uh, uh, we broke a bit of a record. One of our Simon Sinek shows recently hit 60,000 listeners. So that's a lot of folks listening <laughs> to, to you and I just chatting away, Chad. Yeah. Oh my gosh.
1: I I want to take the time to give a heartfelt thank you and shout out to I'm gonna I'm gonna give her the title of Moonshots Super Fan Number One, uh, Maria. <laughs> uh, I had the wonderful opportunity to get together with her in real life and geek out on all things Moonshot and uh beyond. So again, thank you, Maria, for being our number one fan here on the Moonshots podcast. If you if you want to vie for the title, just email Mike and I hello <laughs> at moonshots.io. Tell us uh and feel free to be a critic, you know? Tell us what you like, what we could be doing better, and uh, you know, what sorts of uh interesting people and companies you would like to learn from. Mike and I are always love to open our inboxes to feedback from you all yes
0: yes and um as a little bit of a teaser chad uh do you want to mention a certain second adventure we're going to start recording and publishing soon together do you want to you want to set that up no i'm going to save that to the end of the show you gotta you gotta stick around to the end oh you want to wait you want everyone to wait that long oh gosh yeah this is this is all part of like
1: the narrative structure mike you gotta leave people hanging and sorry yeah right right. okay okay
0: okay it's healthy narrative tension. tension but okay okay healthy healthy emphasis on the healthy part Okay. So there you you have it. We uh, would love any of your feedback. Jump onto moonshots.io, jump onto any of the Fangle Dangle social media channels. You'll find us there. Uh, Lots of you tweeting around, Facebooking us and all that good stuff. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Let's tear into this next bit. So I want you to imagine you're stepping into the arena. You're showing up. I think where Renee Uh, Brene is really coming from here, is got to be yourself. But what's interesting in life for a lot of us, that's a journey in and of itself, is to find out who you really are. But she's got some great tips for us. And uh, the first one's a little bit sort of maybe, I don't know, the warning signs of when you're not being yourself. Mm. Um, So let's have a listen to Brene Brown talking about pleasing others.
2: So one of the things that we do in our personal lives is we try to combat not being enough by pleasing and performing and perfecting. We go through our lives trying to be who we think we're supposed to be, doing and saying what we think people wanna hear, putting on whatever mask or face we think we need to put on for that moment. And what that leaves us is exhausted. When we're pleasing and perfecting and performing, we end up saying yes a lot when we mean no, right? And we also end up saying no when we mean, oh, heck yes, I want to do that. I I really want to do that. And you know what? Even though I have a lot of work, I want to do it now. I don't want to do it five pounds from now. (laughs) I don't want to do it when I'm great. I don't want to do it when I've practiced. I just want to do it now. But we don't have those boundaries when we don't feel like we're worthy and enough. I have this ring. I don't know if you can see it. It's got these little spinners on it. And I bought it for for my 41st birthday the one where I age 21 years and 12 months, um, and it has spinners. And my whole new thing is, when someone asks me to do something now, I spin my ring three times before I answer. And it's my boundary ring. And what I say to myself when I'm spinning it is very simple, and it's choose discomfort over resentment. Brene, can you bring five dozen cookies to school tomorrow? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> What happens when we say, sure, I'll I'll be glad to bring the cookies up to the school. Like, if you know me, you know I'll go right into my very high voice. Sure, I would love to. Peanut free, right? Um, And then what happens is you're home in your kitchen, and your kids want you to be kind and gentle with them, but you're like this. I hate these people. I hate these kids. I hope they choke on my cookie. You know? So how do we do things without resentment, you know, and it takes boundaries. So in the end, I think if we take away anything from the authenticity piece, it is about the courage to be imperfect, to be vulnerable, and to set boundaries.
1: Oh, this, oh. this clip is so great. There's so many amazing <laughs> lessons from here, Mike. I think this, yeah, this is in contention for, for my favorite yeah, clip of the show. I, yeah. I mean, there's so many things that you can take away as a manager, working with others, and just managing your life and yourself and kind of self-regulating.
0: Um, oh, yeah. This this knows no boundaries. Whether you talk about your personal work life, knowing when to say no so you can be better at the things you said yes to. Oh, Chad, this is huge. It's describing me to a T.
1: <laughs> my wife listening to this, she's like, Oh my God, that's Chad, Mr. Overcommitter. Yes. And, but what goes unsaid <laughs> is that there is resentment on the inside because you overcommit and you're like, Oh my God, I don't want to do this because I've overcommitted and now I'm resentful. Mm-hmm. When you should be mm-hmm. yeah, in an ideal world, of, yes, you know, like you should be wholehearted and invested uh, in everything that you're doing. But if you say yes to everything, it's gonna backfire. And so her framing of we often, so how'd she begin? She said, we often say yes when we mean no, and we often say no when we mean hell yes. So her little Mm. trick to just pause and spin that ring of hers, I think is a genius one, making it kind of a physical manifestation or habit um, that forces her to be more mindful when she's agreeing to or disagreeing to do something. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a I love it. fantastic.
0: I love it. Uh, and, and and I suffer the over committing uh, thing as well, Chad. And th- the protective uh, habits that I've, that I tried to build is like, I'd love to, but I can't do it this time, maybe next. Hmm. And r- just reframing, oh, I can't do it, but you know what? So-and-so might be able to do that. Um, and I think if you were, Just genuinely just try and help them get the job done that this person asking would like. I think that's the way to digest it. Um, I certainly feel this is particularly when people want you, have an ask of you which you know you either have very little time or capacity to deliver. Um, And my other thing is like if I tried to do it for you today or tomorrow, I wouldn't do a good job and I don't want to let you down. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're they're just little things I work on trying to do, so that I'm not always trying to please, you know,
1: yeah, I'm taking this away like tonight is choose discomfort over resentment,, mm. so that social pressure to be a pleaser right is so great, but why- yeah, we should be choosing that temporary discomfort for that long term happiness yes. and yeah <laughs> sure <laughs> but
0: but but flip this over into a work situation the worst thing you can do is when requests come your way is always saying yes because you want to like do a good job and please everyone you know sometimes it's um you know i've i've had situations where it's been quite tricky when you have to say no to a client because the constraints by which they're bringing something to you it's just like, it's just simply not enough time, and you you can see in their eyes they're like, oh, "Well, if you don't do it, who's going to do it?" And you know you can see it spinning out, but it's just like, mm. I'm not going to do a good job. I just can't, and uh, I don't want to let you down anyway. So I think with, whether it's me negotiating with my son or my biggest client, it's all the same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I want both and, of them to be happy. <laughs> you know, uh huh.
1: And even you know with work colleagues it it compounds so if you're saying yes and agreeing to something when you know that you can't do it then everyone else is saying yes to things that they know that they can't do and then before you know it everyone is overworked overextended and you have this dysfunctional culture yeah. where everyone's overcommitted mm. everyone's resenting everyone else because they've they've agreed to mm. to do all of these things and i think if many of us take a moment to actually think about it what we should be committing to and and focusing our time on and what we should maybe defer or uh, or delegate, uh, I think it could create much healthier workplaces, much healthier uh, families and relationships. So I, mm. again, I think I think there's so much that we can learn from this clip. But we're not done yet. We have uh, we have some excellent follow-on clips oh, here, yeah. and those of you may sort of hear some parallels or have seen Brené. Uh, with Oprah, someone else that we've uh,
0: profiled here on the show, and mm-hmm. talk about kindred spirits. Oh my gosh, yeah. Oprah and Brené, like, could you imagine those two? I'm sure they're besties. I am sure they're besties. Yeah,
1: yeah. But here's here's uh, Brené talking with her m- more, uh, giving us more advice on how to get practical and be our more authentic selves
2: cultivating authenticity, letting go of what people think. That's the first one. Let's talk about that. It's so hard. I thought doing this research, I thought going into it, there were authentic people and inauthentic people. Mm -hmm. I had, I did not find any evidence of that at all. What I found is authenticity is a practice and you choose it every day, sometimes every hour of every day. And it's a practice. It's not, I just wake up and hey, I'm authentic. It's that when you walk into a meeting, you have to make the choice. Am I going to show up and let myself be seen? Am I going to? Am I going to raise my hand and say, wow, well, y'all look super excited. I don't know what in the hell you're talking about. I'm so <laughs> lost." You know, that's a choice. Yes. Uh huh. Right. hmm. And what to and to be make that authentic choice. You got to let go of.
1: Of, of 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 the faker fakeru, I say. Yeah. I call it the fakeru. But you know what? I have found. I mean, I, I consider myself to be an authentic person. But when I am inauthentic, is when I've allowed myself to be around people who were not, and then I have to fake it to be with them. Oh, for sure. It's contagious. Yes. So they're faking it. And then, and you know, you're in that situation when you do that, that kind of, you're laughing at jokes that aren't funny. You're pretending to be comfortable when you're not and lose your own authenticity. Yeah. And I do
0: it. Mm, The fakeroo, like for me, I think the big gift in this that Brene is bringing to us is learning just to be yourself is not something you just flick a switch and do. It's mm. it's an active pursuit. And I must say that one of the biggest things I've had professionally throughout my career is to, to try and work out really who I want to be and how I want to work, how the people I want to surround myself with. And that's why seven or eight years ago, I made that massive pivot out of Madison Avenue and said, nope, I want to do something else. I'm not really, this doesn't seem like the place that is a good fit for me. And I want to be, be in a practice that fits me better so I can just be myself mm-hmm. amongst the right people. And I love this idea that it's something you've got to work on. And I, fi- I find myself working on just working with the right people, being the person, having the habits and the rituals that I think are the right way to do things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm tying this all the way back to the beginning, one of the beginning clips where she talks about getting very clear about your values. For me, how the the practice of being authentic looks and feels, it's, it's being sure that you're embodying and demonstrating those values that, that you've decided are very important for you. And I mean, I, I also just really Identify with the social situations that Oprah talks about, <laughs> and and the ha ha because uh-huh. yeah, you may have no interest at all in what this person is doing or saying, or just be simply confused and not have the context. But yeah, that uh, that vicious circle of the uh, thats a real thing.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> the fakeeru exists, and you know the funny thing is, if you invert it and say rather than just avoiding the fake situation let's find good people real people authentic people that i just feel at home and comfortable with what's really interesting is i'm very conscious of working with colleagues like yourself clients like the ones that we have with partners and experts all around the world that universally i just like being with mm-hmm. like it's not particularly complex So the biggest client in the world could come and say, Mike, build me a dozen brand new products. And if I felt that they were going to be nasty, judgmental, uh, and really hard to work with, maybe I'm just getting old, Chad, but I just can't be bothered. Because I think when you have these wonderful clients that want to partner and challenge you, when you have colleagues that want to learn and partner and challenge It all comes together in this huge wave of momentum because everywhere you look, you're surrounded by good people and this sort of kinetic energy because in the end, we're all social beings. So Mm -hmm. if all the dimensions and the constituents and the stakeholders around us are nice, talented people who we can just be ourselves around... And it's just one big virtuous circle of velocity and momentum. It's a flywheel effect, isn't
1: it? Yeah, and we don't have to work so hard at being authentic because we're surrounding ourselves with those individuals and people and organizations that share those common values with yeah. us. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, we've focused a lot of this reflection on the workplace, but this last uh, idea in terms of authenticity from Brené Brown she's actually going to flip it into her personal life and she reflects on, you know, all the dreams and hopes and aspirations that we typically have nice house and all that sort of stuff. And she's going to explain how her practice has led her to some new insights into her personal life. So let's have a listen to Brené Brown talking about when enough starts with enough.
2: I am enough starts with enough. Steve and I for a long time had a list of everything we wanted like our, our, our achievement list, maybe a lake house. Like every other person I know, I want a bigger house with a guest room. No one will ever come. But for some reason, what, it's just like this draw, right, to have the guest room. Well, when the wholehearted research came out, it fundamentally shifted the way we live, the way we parent, everything. And so we decided to make a list of everything that was happening in our lives when we felt really joyful. Like what, what's happening, not a want list, but like actually based on evidence. Like we're the happiest when what's happening. And we looked at this list and the list was the opposite of the want list. The want list dictated to us that we needed to work more and make more money. And the joy list meant less work and more time. Here's the part where we all struggle. Worthiness does not have prerequisites. We need to find a way to engage with the world from a place of worthiness. We need to find a way to say, I'm enough. This is who I am. Because I literally believe that our lives depend on it.
1: Hmm. It's it's so opposed to everything that we hear in the startup world and entrepreneurship and
0: innovation, isn't it, Mike? Sure. You would even go as far as saying most Western First world modern uh, social environments are drawn by an economic construct of what you own. What are the symbols of success? Consumption. So we all dream for big houses, fast cars, lots. You know, the, what did she call it? Not the, not the, uh, uh, the lake house. Everyone's got the second home. All this sort of stuff, yep. and it can be. So disconnected with what makes you happy, and and I I, I, firsthand I have seen people consumed with these things who are far from the happiest people I know. Yeah,
1: and this idea that enough starts with enough. This vow, and and you are okay with who you are today. That there's not some like unrealized self or potential that you have to work and strive towards to be because. You know, we all kind of know that hamster wheel that that puts us on. Mm. Um, so I, I just love this reminder from her. I think it's you know it's landing with me at a time where I think it's a really important message. As so much has changed for me this year, I think it's important to understand that I don't have to necessarily strive for more in order to uh, to to be worthy.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and and you know, I, I feel like I made my own step in this when we got our new house, we deliberately went for something kind of on the small side, um, certainly below average for the Australian house. And we chose a, a more humbler path. And um, when you just focus on the things that are going to make you happy, I, I think life just becomes not only simpler, but... I think we waste so much energy uh, aspiring to compete. What's the American saying? Competing with the Joneses? You know, don't they? Keeping Isn't up with the, the Joneses. Keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, forget that stuff. Just be yourself. Focus on those moments that she said, you know, you're happiest when. What are the simple delights that truly speak to you, your partner, your family? Things are bound to work out. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to challenge you, Mike. I'm going to do this
1: with. With my my <laughs> partner as well, like let let's make that list, right? So so you make the list of it. We'll we'll take you and I as an example in the workplace. Mm. I'd be curious to know what your top three or five. You know, I'm happiest at work
0: when dot dot dot. Yeah, yeah. To see you what want, your answers yep, are, yeah, yep. And then and you mine. want me to tell you now? Yeah, now? and
1: we. Can, oh sure,
0: yeah. Okay, so I'm definitely happiest in the office when I'm having fun while working on something big with my colleagues i am the happiest at work and in the office when i'm working with a client who really wants to partner with me and i'm happiest in the office when something that i have built can come into the world and bring delight satisfaction a smile to the mm. to the user's face mm. That's great. I'm sure you could list
1: off uh, many more. Yeah, but I it's think pretty simple. Of,
0: it's pretty simple, isn't it? Yeah,
1: but think of how much of work is not that. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or how our decisions lead us on a path that is not that. Right. When we're saying yes and we should be saying no. Ooh ha <laughs> Top of the class. Come uh, on, do your list, Chad. Let's go. Uh, for me, I don't think this will be a surprise to anyone. I'm I'm happiest at work when I'm both learning and sharing my learning with others. Ooh. Um, Geez, you're in the right job, Ben. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I'm also happiest when I am able to lead from behind instead of rallying the troops uh, from, the f- from the front. Uh, I think, I think that's, that's my style, and I, I really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. I'm also happiest when I have the... Uh, what does Cal call it? The monk time. I'm happiest oh. when I have the monk time yeah. to do those two or three hours of deep work uh, every day. Mm. So yeah, n- now we've 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 uh, we've committed to one another to help and enable yeah. that for for one another.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I'd encourage our listeners to reach out to us and and share amongst themselves or even share with us the answers to those questions, I'd be fascinated to know what are the moments that people say at work when they're the happiest, you know? Um, and how
1: different they are from maybe their wants or, or goals and, and and understand maybe we would be a little happier if we better aligned our goals and our wants with what makes us happiest. True, true. That, That seems like a pretty
0: good, uh, life
1: uh, recipes or prescription.
0: That's wonderful. Well, thank you for for getting us through that little exercise, Chad. That's awesome. But we've just got one or two more clips, and I can promise you uh, that we have um, the little announcement that we'll do at the end of the show, just to remind you of Chad's little teasing deferral of announcements. (laughs) Bad, 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 bad. But... We also have two clips, one of which is really strong. If you're not sitting down, you might want to because this these these coming two clips are great, and um, they focus more on orientating ourselves more into a team family situation, or if we think about work, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps. Um, Beyond work, it's the sort of the community or, or, or what Brene calls the tribe. Um, these are two clips that really matter when you think about um, how we want to interact with others and how we want to do our best work. But let's first start with how we want to interact with others and particularly with those that we're close to. You know, Brene has this great thought that there really is an enormous difference between empathy and sympathy. So let's have a listen to what she has to say is Brené brown
2: so what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy empathy fuels connection sympathy drives disconnection empathy it's very interesting teresa wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy perspective taking The ability to take the perspective of another person or or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. (laughs) Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh huh. Uh, no. You want a sandwich? Um, Empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. (laughs) I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection.
0: Mm. <laughs> told you we were ending on a strong couple of clips. Like, how? That one that one's pretty intense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I would encourage anyone that is connecting with any of these clips from Brené, to To grab any of her books because the advice and the research and everything in them uh, is really powerful. In this clip, what I'm taking away from it is the power of listening, mm. active listening mm. and reflective listening, as opposed to a, a bit of a self-criticism here is I, I do have a bias towards action. And so when someone is sharing something with me where maybe I should be a bit more empathic uh i want to jump in and try and do something and here she says you know maybe just listen and and put yourself in their shoes and not try to solve it or to try and do something that's
0: that's very hard mm. for me yeah i mean it's it's um to take your idea further it's almost like someone who's facing a challenge the greatest medicine for their pain is just the connection and being heard Mm-hmm. Like no amount of brainstorming is going to fix it. They just need to know, I'm not alone. Someone to say, Oh, I know you work so hard. Bummer. It's just being heard. Like you don't have to jump into action man, supermans, let's solve all of this because it's almost like they've just got to purge it, feel that they're connected to someone that they're being heard. I thought that was a great point. I've certainly learned that in my marriage as well. Like, sometimes i jump into well let's do this this and this. and it's like no mike i think i should just listen <laughs> acknowledge listen acknowledge mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm.
1: and and using empathy as a tool for connection i think is really important you and i mike don't do anything alone when it comes right. to our work and i think we can use this uh we can use this distinction between empathy and and sympathy we can we can do the perspective taking, you know, thinking, putting ourselves in the other person's shoes, not judge them, and recognizing, you know, the emotions that that they're feeling. We can use that to drive the connections with the people that we work with, the clients that we serve, and and the customers, you know, that we're building products and services with. And so, we will leave you in this last clip from Brené, talking about building these connections with others as we are doing this this work and. Um, All of us sweaty creatives.
2: So I thought about it and I thought, okay, so I'm a researcher. I study connection. I study vulnerability. I study love. And then I realized why I thought you were my tribe. I think it's because design is a function of connection. There is nothing more vulnerable than creativity and what is art if it's not love? So it made sense to me to be here. And then I thought, okay, 99% perspiration, they said, don't talk about inspirational stuff, talk about the how to's. So, you know, my name, sometimes I name my keynote presentations things that'll make me feel better about being here. So this one's called Sweaty Creatives, um, <laughs> because I know what it means to be a sweaty creative. Um, Because I create all the time when I write, the way I translate my research, when I talk. And I know what the perspiration feels like. And so what I wanna talk about today is the perspiration that no one talks about very often. And that's not the perspiration from the hard work and the laborious part of creating. It's the perspiration from fear, from the cold sweat, the stuff that pops up on our eyebrows when it's not supposed to be there because we're presenting an idea or talking about something that we care about. And then we're begging our body not to sweat. Like when they said, we're filming you against black. Can you wear something else? I'm like, "Uh, no. Uh, (laughs) That 99% perspiration thing, I'm down with that. I got that. I won't be wearing, I'll be wearing, Uh, yes, my option will be navy. Um, So I know about sweaty creatives.
0: (laughs) How good is that? But isn't it interesting whether you're talking about empathy on a one-on-one situation or trying to create something in the world, you might call that design, you might call that building a business, whatever it is, design is a function of connection to others, to yourself. It's about understanding, Mm -hmm. it's about empathy. So if we want to go out in the world and create, it is all about connection with ourselves and with others. It's all about be your true self. Don't listen to the critics, know that they're there, but have the courage to show up and step into the arena.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this. Uh, I don't know about you, Mike, but I've had a lot of fun going through all of these clips from Brene. And we have so many more. We've got several shows lined up here, chronicling even more insights from Brene's work and research. Mm. I think for me, what I'm taking away from this episode is to pause and take a moment to do a little bit more self-reflection and, and setting intentions. Because I think right now, at least at work, you know, it's very busy. There's a lot of activity. And and we can just forget to take the time to be intentional about being empathetic, about reserving those seats in the uh, arena for our critics. Yeah, so that's that's yeah. what I'm taking away and, from the and show.
0: It's, um, to me, there was a lot what I'm going to take out is a bit different, which is a reminder that when you try and do something bold and different, when you try and build your own company, that it's it's not meant to be easy and you're going to face critics and especially the inner critic most of all, and that you should just continue to be yourself, demonstrate empathy and understand that everything that we design and build is a function of our connection to each other and to the world. And, Mm. and uh, I get a lot of inspiration out of that. There was also, if that didn't get me, just think about where you might be in the long term, where you might be at the end of your career. Do you ever want to be standing there saying, I wish I had showed up and I certainly don't want to be in that situation. Well, there you have it, Chad. I mean, we ended on a pretty strong note, um, thinking about design and and creating a business, creating products, really is a function of connection. Mm -hmm. Not only connection with ourselves, but with each other. And I think this is essential if we want to go out there and be ourselves. Don't let the critics hold us back. But most of all, I think what Brene Brown brought to us in this book is a challenge. Dare to be great, to show up, to get into that arena. And you know, she reminded us there will be a time where you'll ask yourself, "Did I show enough? Off show up enough in life?" Mm-hmm. And I think she's given us a, such a wonderful framework to to get over those. I remember at the start of the show chat, I said, "It's those little voices." Yep. I feel like I'm ready to do battle with those voices.
1: Yeah, yeah, and we've and we've got many more shows to come, diving into some of Brené's uh, newer books, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong, and we're gonna. We're going to continue this authors kick. We've got another big one out there on the horizon. After Brené mm. diving into the works of Jim Collins, another <laughs> very well researched uh, and uh, insightful author in in the world of business, with books like Built to Last and Good to Great. So yeah, I'm 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 really excited with our plans for the future of the Moonshots Podcast, but. As you had mentioned, mm-hmm. we have another project cooking. Mike and I have had the pleasure of officially joining forces this year in in our professional lives and work. And a part of that has been solidifying our thoughts and ideas and exploration around what we're calling bottom up innovation. So, I'm really excited to announce a new podcast project called the Bottom Up podcast, where Mike and I will give you bite-sized episodes, sharing everything that you need to know to take a new approach to innovation, some skills, methodologies, frameworks, practices, case studies, and and so much more. Mike, what, uh, what sorts of things can people expect in our new show?
0: Well, I mean, we have got so much to cover in the new show, but um, we're going to break down uh, the travails of WeWork, um, and we're going to do some very quick, sharp examination of their product, their profit model, their people model, and how they promote the business to try and uh, ask ourselves, what can we learn from WeWork? So we're going to use a lot of techniques from lean and agile design thinking and all that good stuff. And then we're going to swing for the fences. We're going to break down uh, the masterclass uh, that we have built, which you can take as a course on bottomart.io. And we're going to take one template, one tool from each of the chapters, and we're going to discuss it in less than 10 minutes. And each and every one of these tools could be incredibly valuable for you. If you're a designer, a creator, a maker, a builder, entrepreneur, innovator, these are the modern tools of innovators and we're going to break them down. And at the end of every show, you'll be actually uh, able to get a template of the tool that we just discussed. So you can literally listen to us and then take a shot at doing your own one. And I think uh, after years and years of doing this, like, There, like, you can just go through and shortcut all of the pain and suffering of Chad and Mm -hmm. I learning, (laughs) figuring out what tools to use for what sort of problems. And you can just like shortcut the process and get it uh, from the source. So, really excited. You can go to bottomup.io to see our courses. But more importantly, probably around the time that you're starting to listen to this show, you will find uh, that you can go to bottomup.io and find our new podcast called bottom-up podcast, so we are super, super excited to share that with you.
1: But do not worry, Moonshots is not going anywhere. Uh, Mike and I have no intention of stopping this learning journey alongside all of you, so as I mentioned, we've got several more books with Brene Brown, turning our attention to Jim Collins, uh, and so much more. True, true.
0: Well, Chad, it has been wonderful. And I thank you for bringing us uh, the work of Brené Brown. It's been great to share this with you, with our listeners. I feel ready to go and tackle those little voices in my head. Actually, the voice in my head right now is I wouldn't mind lunch. But apart from that voice, I'm going to tackle all of the other ones that I encounter on my journeys and adventures, and I hope you, Chad, do as well.
1: Thanks, Mike. I can't wait for the next one.
0: All right, guys, that's it. That's a wrap of the Moonshots podcast. Join us next time for more of the wonderful work of Brene Brown. That's a wrap.